Hello, this is Leela Viss, and welcome to Key Ideas. Piano teaching doesn't come bundled with ready-made solutions. This podcast highlights some brilliant options for innovative piano teachers just like you. I'm really excited to host my first Spotlight episode. A Spotlight episode is one that I share with a good friend, and today I welcome my dear friend, Samantha Coates, all the way from Sydney, Australia. She makes me giggle, and sometimes uncontrollably. In this episode, we dive deep into what a mission statement is and why it's important to have one. When I looked up the definition of a mission statement, I learned that a mission statement has three components, a statement of vision, a statement of core values, and a statement of goals and objectives. I recommend following that guide if you have not made a mission statement for yourself and need a place to start. I think that Samantha and I followed our passions in developing ours, and you'll hear why as you eavesdrop on our conversation. (laughs) If this is the first time you've met Samantha, you're in for a treat. Here's a rundown of what Sam is up to over in Sydney. Samantha Coates is an Australian pianist, teacher, and author. She's the creator and publisher of Blitz Books, the music education series that has brought laughter and creativity to music theory, sight reading, and piano repertoire. Samantha holds a Bachelor of Music degree, as well as several performance diplomas, and has been teaching in Sydney for over three decades. She's an internationally regarded piano pedagogue and presenter, well known for her entertaining presentation style and is regularly invited to speak at conferences around the world on a wide range of pedagogical topics. In her spare time, Samantha enjoys giving volunteer recitals in nursing homes, going for long walks in the sun, and watching Disney movies with her grown-up children. In just a moment, you'll hear Samantha describe her resource, Rote Repertoire. Head to the show notes at leelavis.com slash keyideas to learn more. Now, here's Leela's conversation with Samantha. By the way, her close friends call her Sam. So welcome, Sam. Tell us what you're keeping busy with right now. Hello, Leela. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm very excited to be here. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, What am I keeping busy with? Right. Well, uh, we are in the middle of term three here in Australia. So um, we're like week five, week six, halfway through the term. And so I'm busy with teaching and I also am busy just recording the next batch of pieces for my Rote Repertoire site. So um, that involves me composing new pieces and then getting a video crew over to my house and doing the video tutorials for those pieces, creating the audio tracks, then writing the teacher guides and um, and then putting them all together in the little digital packs um, that people can hopefully buy. And and have all their students um, sight reading and being incredibly creative and having a wonderful time. It's an amazing resource. And I think maybe let's just step back before we jump into our hot topic for today. Let's jump back and let's talk about the reason why you created that resource. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good story, actually. <laughs> um, so I um, I grew up never, ever having 
had anything to do with rote teaching. I was taught by a very traditional Russian piano teacher and I never played a single note that I had not read off a page. And I was taught that rote was cheating, rote was bad. And then in 2017, I attended my very first MTNA in Baltimore, which is actually where you and I met, Leila. Yes. And I went to the um, to Julie Nur and Catherine Fisher's uh, session about um, their stuff, Piano Safari. And, and it's kind of changed my mind about rote teaching. And I tried it out and because they have some rote pieces and some reading pieces in their method. But then I thought, what if we could have rote and reading all in one piece? What if we could just somehow combine it? So I've, um, that's what gave me the idea of, of scaffolding a piece. So you have, um, so I would write a piece, something that I thought was comfortable and easy to play and interesting to play that um, would really need to be taught by rote because interesting pieces for beginners do need to be taught by rote. Uh, it looks too complicated on the page, but there's no reason why students couldn't also read a little bit of what's on the page, even if they couldn't understand absolutely everything. So um, that's why my pieces are scaffolded into three levels. And so the first level is taught by rote and it sets up the hand position and they can play this piece, this easy piece, but then they see levels two and three and they spot the difference in the score. They, they look at the music and they, even a preschooler can spot the difference between two pictures. That's all it is to them if they can't read music yet. It's two, two different pictures, but they can see the differences and then they can understand how those differences relate to sound. And that's the beginning of all reading skills in any language. And anyway, so this site, my site's been up for like nearly two and a half years now and it's, it's gradually gaining traction. Gradually more and more people are getting to know about it, but... Um, it is definitely a very, uh, a very specific way of teaching this repertoire. It's designed to teach sight reading well, and creativity. Two things came to mind when I first heard about it and when I first met you is you were so shocked by rote, teaching by rote. I'm like, well, what's the big deal? So that it's so interesting to know how far you've come in so little time with teaching rote. And then the other thing is, man, I wish I would have came up with your idea because it's uh-huh. <laughs> It's wonderful. It's fantastic because it has every part of learning involved in it. You're learning by ear, then you're using your reading skills and you're being creative. I just, it's the full package. So congratulations for thinking about it first. Oh, well, that's very kind of you. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I definitely changed my mind about rote. I I reckon I was a rote snob. Oh, I, I looked down on people who who learned by rote, who taught by rote, but what a fantastic teaching tool it is. It is, it, it's, it's such an integral part of my teaching now. But of course, music literacy is very, another very important part of my teaching. Yeah. So yeah, it, all of teaching needs to be a whole package really, doesn't it? And I like the word that you used, it's a tool. It's not a means it's not the only means to an end, right? But it's, oh. uh, to me, it's important that a student is playing what they like to hear. And if we're only just stuck on the page, they're not going to play very exciting music. But if they can play something by rote and have fun, they're going to come back to the next lesson, right? They want to come yeah. because they like what they're playing. That's right. If they're limited to notation, they're just on such boring stuff for so long. Oh, I do not want to play do, re, do, re, do, re, do for two years because that's all I can read. Right. 
Oh, mm, yes. So we don't limit children speaking to what they can read. We don't tell little kids to to stop speaking and and tell them that they can only say the and ah because that's all they can read. We let them talk, and then they learn to read and write later. <laughs> And I think the, the other thing, music. I like the word scaffolding. I think that's such a good word. And what, what this also does is it immediately lets them know that they can have freedom away from the page, right? Because they're that's not locked nice. into just those notes. And that's the other thing that we get stuck with, right? We, oh, wait a minute. I can only play what's on the page. Didn't say I could do anything more. So you're giving them permission to go away from it. That is right. Yes. Yes, because the creative aspect, of course, is that once I've done these three levels that I've written, scaffolded the piece into three levels, that I send them away. Once they can play level three, which is kind of like, you know, the goal piece, the real piece, then I send them away and say, now, why don't you come up with your own level four? And that's easy for them because they've just played three versions of the piece. Well, yeah, so- this segues very nicely into what we are planning on talking about today, and that is your mission statement. And let's just talk about where your mission statement would have been or what it, what it would have been like back in 2017 or before 2017 and how it looks today. So let's go back just a little bit. And if you were, well, first of all, why have you never thought of writing one? That was interesting to me because I always, that was one of the things I had to do in pedagogy class. We had to decide on a mission statement. So first of all, why have you never made one? And then second, what do you think yours would have looked like before 2017? Mm, Such interesting questions. Well, the reason why I never made a mission statement and never occurred to me uh, is because A, I didn't think about it and B, it was never part of a course. There are no pedagogy courses in Australia, if you can believe that. So um, I was never taught how to teach Uh, I was taught how to perform, how to research. I did a Bachelor of Music degree majoring in performance. That doesn't teach you anything about pedagogy. So everything I learned, I learned on the job. And I, I do, when I think back to my first students over 35 years ago, I do cringe a little. (laughs) <laughs> we um, all do. I, mm, yeah, I was I was so totally not a good teacher then. And I, I also am sad because I never had a mentor. I think young teachers now can have mentors and that makes such a difference. I mentored my own daughter. She started teaching when she was younger than I was when I first started teaching, but it's okay because I was looking over her shoulder the whole time. I think if you have a voice of experience behind you to support you, you can do great things when you're young. So uh, I never had a mission statement because I was naive and just started teaching like so many people do, just thinking, well, I can play piano, so therefore I can teach. And we all know there's a lot more to it than that. And uh, for many years, I just taught the way I was taught, but I had, um, I'd only had really two or three piano teachers in my life, so not a great deal of exposure, and they were mostly very conservative and one had particularly strange ideas on technique. So then I didn't even really know how I was teaching. Um, uh, Yeah, I I would say I stumbled through. And it's really not until the last three, four years that I've realized what I'm truly passionate about. And that is to equip students with skills that will enable recreational music making in the future. 
That's nice. probably my absolute passion. That would be my that would be my mission statement if I could only have one sentence is that uh, my I feel that my job is to equip students with skills that will enable recreational music making in the future. Uh, nice. But then I have to explain that. You know, parents don't get that because mm-hmm. what they think, particularly in Australia and definitely in the UK, not so much in the States, is that you've got to do exams. Mm. Yeah, parents think if, you, if you're not doing going through all your grades, then you're not learning piano. And it's now, can we just step back here a minute? Because when I hear the word exam, I think high school and college exams, and those were always at the end of a semester. And that's as much as I heard the word exam. And it wasn't until I met people like you and other people from the UK that there's such a thing as piano exams and they sound really scary. So tell us about them. Well, yeah, it's this incredibly ingrained culture where uh, you can undertake the exam pretty much at any time of year, but there's a piano syllable, there's every instrument, there's a syllabus for every instrument. Um, And in most exams, what will happen is most traditional exams, you'll have to play a selection of scales and you'll have to play a study and then you'll have to play a, a selection of pieces that you've practiced all year probably. And then you get tested on your oral skills and then sight reading test and then some um, general knowledge questions like asking students about the title of their pieces and the form and the keys and the modulation and the Italian terms. And the exam goes like for, for the preliminary grade exams, the very first exams, it's just a little 10-minute exam right up to the diploma exams, which might go for an hour. It's more like a, a recital. Uh, and then you get a grade, you get like an A+. plus. Everyone wants an A+, plus, or maybe you get an A, or maybe you get a B+. Plus. Um, and this culture has been around in Australia for 100 years and in the UK for more than that. Um, it, it, and it just, whilst it's good for students to have a goal to work towards, what has happened is that students end up on this exam treadmill, if you like, where all they're doing is practicing the pieces that they have to play in their exam and they don't see any value in practicing anything that's not going to be assessed in that exam. It just becomes all about the exam. And whilst it's great to learn how to master a piece, There's nothing in the exam that tests chord chart reading or improvisation or composition or by ear skills or any of those things that that you need for the recreational music making. It's 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 quite limiting in its syllabus, and so I know so many students who have been through perhaps seven or eight grades of piano become quite masterful, even at a young age, pass these very high level exams. And then they can no longer play the piano at all. Once they stop, that's it. They have no skills to be able to just sit down and tinker away. And I've seen that here in the States when they go on a fast track to just go from one competition to the next. They get burnt out. They, they don't right. find their passion. That's what I was going to say about the exams. Is they don't test students on their passion at all, right? <laughs> They're not interested in what, what do these kids like to play, They just want them to jump through the hoops. And so they learn how to jump through hoops. And so music becomes hoop jumping and that's it. There's nothing else involved, right? Yes, that's right. And it's very time consuming to, um, to master the things that are required for the grades, for the particular grade that the student wants to sit because they're, they're quite difficult. It's quite a difficult set of hoops to jump through. 
And uh, sometimes students only just manage it. They only just scrape it together and they practice madly for the last four weeks leading up to the exam. And maybe somehow they fluke it and do quite well. And maybe that was fourth grade and it's been an incredibly stressful experience for the teacher just to get them through. And then the student announces they want to go straight on to fifth grade. And, and it's, yeah, there's just no time to take a minute and do some fun and interesting and holistic things in the lesson. Well, what I'm hearing so, too is that it takes away all the fun. Music is related to stress and that's it. Yes, music is it's related to stress and uh, assessment. So an exam can be a useful assessment tool, but it should not be the be-all and end-all of learning and of the whole musical experience. So now I'm going to be nosy again, Sam, how many other teachers around your area have a similar mission statement to you? Are they moving towards what you are doing as well? Well, I would say the majority of teachers um, follow an examination syllabus, the majority of teachers that I know. And that is not because they have any less passion than I do. It's because of the incredible parental pressure and of the culture. So um, I'm in a a rather unique and lucky position that I'm in a stage of my teaching career where I can pick and choose the students that I want. Uh, I have a waiting list and I have the luxury and the privilege of being able to explain to parents, well, this is how I teach. And if you don't like that, then you probably shouldn't come to me. Um, whereas if there is a teacher that needs to fill their studio for their, of course, overall income, livelihood, you can't afford to be turning away students. So um, maybe you don't get to teach just the way you want to teach if you've got parents who are insisting on exams. So I put together a document, which is rather an elongated mission statement, I suppose. I put together a document explaining my overall expertise in philosophy. And in that, I talk about recreational music making skills and what it takes to do that. But then I've got a big, long paragraph about exams and explaining my feeling about exams and that the majority of my students do not undertake exams, which, to answer your question, Leela, pretty much is unusual, I would say. That is unusual. Uh, very occasionally, I have a student who's desperate to do an exam. And as long as the student is keen, not the parent, the student, I'm happy for them to do it if it's a one or two term experience. So three to six months. If, if, that's, if we want to have like a, a crash course going towards that exam, and that's an interesting experience in the year, but then it's not everything. It's not, we're not spending our whole year working towards that one single goal. It sounds like you have to retrain the parents. So I'm now thinking that when parents come to you, do they show relief? Do they show surprise? How, how do they respond to your mission statement of recreational music? They usually respond very positively because I've managed to frame it in a way that makes them realize that the reason they are investing in piano lessons for their child is because they do want their child to take music into adulthood. And when I explain to them that, being on the exam track and solely on an exam track is pretty much a way to kill music skills in adulthood. It's a way to, to limit those music making skills. Then they understand and they're usually with me. Uh, So 
it's it's all about parent education so much so much of piano teaching i think is about parent education mm. uh because and fair enough the parents don't really know but they are investing their money their good hard-earned dollars every week and i think that they are comforted to know that it's going to be a long-term investment and that they're fostering a love of music in their child and and they're uh, paying me to foster a love of music in their child. So, it, you, yeah, it's just a matter of how, how you frame it, really. That's what I was going to say is they're spending quite a bit of hard-earned money paying you to be with their child. And it would be really nice for them to be able to see the results of that move into their adulthood, right? Whereas I know yes, that we paid yes. a lot of money for Levi to play soccer and guess what? He's not playing soccer anymore, but he is still playing piano. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. It's. I also you, think that. Right? Sorry. Oh, it sticks with you. It never goes away. No, not if it's not if it's done right. That's right. Mm-hmm. It never goes away. Uh, I I think it's a a tragedy if somebody has a high level of piano skills when they're young, but cannot accompany the family singing Happy Birthday when they're older. Mm-hmm. They cannot just, you know, jump on and play those three chords that you need for and a little accompaniment for happy birthday because that's not the way they were taught. And it's so easy. Oh, playing from bead sheets is so easy. Every one of my students plays happy birthday every year and they add just a little bit more to it to make it even more fancy than the year before. But it is. It's something that we should all be able to do. And I didn't learn that way either. So I'm right with you. So I like your mission statement and I wonder if you'll add anything to it through the years or will you stick to that? It's interesting because I revisited mine because I hadn't looked at it for a while and I really didn't change all that much. So I'm, I'm thinking that I, I am now in that sweet spot, but I think people will probably change theirs throughout their life as they morph into the teacher they really want to be. Yes, I think it takes a while to morph into the teacher that you really want to be. Uh, and, and, and that can change as well. Um, and you develop different passions. And also for me, I've realized that I, I do have a niche in, there's a particular type of student that I, I really enjoy teaching. And I think um, I've realized that just because you teach piano, it doesn't mean that you have to be good at teaching all levels equally or to enjoy teaching all levels equally, Mm. it's okay to have a specialty and a niche. And you and I have talked about this before, Leela. What's Mm. our favorite type of transfer student to have? We love transfer um, students with what? Yes, go ahead, say it. Yes, and uh, my favorite type of transfer student to have is the the early intermediate that needs rescuing so that I can be the, the heroic overhauling teacher. Uh, I love that. I love um, transforming uh, students who have not been exposed to any of those holistic things, which is probably how I started when I was little. Uh, But I tend not to want to take very advanced students. So if somebody calls me up and says, oh, my child has already done grade seven and wants to do grade eight, which is a very high level, I now say, look, I'm not the teacher for you. Whereas other teachers would love to specialize in that area. They love to have advanced students. So finding your specialty and your love, I think, also is a really big part of it. 
It is. And it's a luxury, right? And we've, we've paid our dues. And I had this mentality that I will teach anyone. And I did. I did teach anyone for a long time. And now I'm narrowing that scope just a little bit. And it sounds like you are too. But that comes with years of experience and also with other maybe streams of income, right? You know, we can afford to do that. It's not just a lucrative thing to be in one little niche, but it is really fun when it feeds your soul, right? Oh, yes. What a great phrase. Yes, we wanted to feed our souls. Mm-hmm. That's right. And if it doesn't feed your soul, then yeah, go find something that does. But all easier said than done. I, you know, as, as I said, yes, I'm, I, feel, I feel very lucky to be in a position where I am, I am interviewing the student as much as they are interviewing me. I'm interviewing the parent. When, when, I, when I interview new students, really I'm interviewing the parent. I'll take on pretty much any student. Um, it doesn't matter what the child is like personality-wise. If the parent is supportive, it doesn't matter what needs the child has. If the parent is supportive, all is well. Agreed. Totally agree. And I want them to be excited about what I'm excited about, right? And I think that's yes. why I en- end up liking referrals from my families because they're excited about what I'm doing. And that's a whole nother ball of wax that we could get into. Sounds like we need to have another podcast just related to parent issues. And that would be a great one. So maybe we'll have to do that someday. I do want to just close with this idea of what a mission statement is. It basically is something that I found I needed because I was kind of waffling. I got this master's degree in piano performance and pedagogy, and I was just kind of worn out. I really didn't feel like it anymore. And that was also when I could not read a chord chart. I was not educated that way at all. So I was completely shattered when I realized that what I saw other people do, I could not do after years and years of schooling. So I think what helped me come through all of that was having a mission statement and setting it and then having a vision. It's kind of like, well, we are running our own business, right? So now because of that mission statement, we know what we want to do and how we're going to do it and how we're going to invest our time and our money and, and, and figure out what professional development courses we want to take, all those kind of things. So I think that really helps define you. So if, you're, if you don't have one yet, I really do think it's a good idea. I think it's a fantastic idea. And I'm also quite taken with the fact that neither you nor I, Leila, could read a chord chart. <laughs> we were not taught to do that. And yet now not only can we do it, but it is our passion to teach that. And I think that is something that if there are any classically trained teachers out there listening to this who are thinking, oh, no, you know, chord charts aren't for me, it's, it's not true. Therefore, everybody, it's easy and it opens up a, a world of music for students who, you know, we're in the 21st century, so we need to not be only teaching 17th, 18th, 19th century music. Um, and um, and let's but let's face it, in the 17th century, they could all read chord charts. They just read figure okay. bass. They totally were up up to reading partial notation. And I'm quite um, sure that Chopin never ever ever played any of his pieces the same way twice. Right. Yes. Yes. How could he? I mean, 
That's, that's amazing. Imagine if you had every note of his fa- own fantasy impromptu down every time. Right. <laughs> oh, he, I'm sure he changed things up because he could. Yes. He knew how, right? Yeah. Oh, amazing. Amazing. But yeah, I think if you, even if you write down what you think your mission statement might be and then you go and teach for six months and then you revisit it, it then might give you a bit of clarity to try and develop one. And it is great to have one. It is, it, it has, it has changed the last three months for me, just in terms mm. of inquiries from other students that I've had, just actually writing something down. This is my passion. This is the way I teach. Mm-hmm. It's identifying yourself with something now, right? And sometimes it, it just takes a while. It doesn't come to you right away. And as I was looking through mine, I added a word. I rethought a couple of words, but I said, no, I'm going to keep those in there. So it, it is something to just revisit and put on your website. If you have a website, which would be a good idea. If you do have a website, I'm not talking to you, Sam, but in general, <laughs> websites are good. And yes. telling people what your mission, what your goal is for their child, for an adult student is really, really beneficial for everyone. Yeah. Oh, it was like a Jerry Maguire moment for me. It was great. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now explain a Jerry Maguire moment. What does that mean? Oh, the film. Jerry Maguire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. The film. And it starts off with him deciding that the company needs a mission statement oh. and he goes and creates all these copies and that's what gets him fired. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's not exactly a great metaphor for what's happened in my business, but <laughs> it was an epiphany. <laughs> I like that. Okay. Sorry. I got to go watch that movie again. It's been a long time. Oh, it's really good. Okay. I'll have to watch it. Well, Sam, it's been great talking with you. I would love to have you back. Will you come back again sometime? I would love to come back. Okay, cool. It was such a pleasure shining the spotlight on Samantha Coates. Head to blitzbooks.roachrepertoire.com to learn more about her brilliant resources or find links in the show notes at leelavis.com slash key ideas. I leave you with my mission statement, which has changed just a little over the years, but not all that much. Students of any age will develop the necessary skills to become literate, creative, tech-savvy, and independent pianists, allowing them to enjoy making music on the bench for a lifetime. Take a moment and subscribe to this podcast so that you can catch the next episode, and I greatly appreciate your kind reviews. Until next time, hang in there and see you in the trenches.